This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. A new book by journalist Joshua Frank tells the story of one of the world's major nuclear waste sites, a place right here in the United States that most of you have likely never heard of. Hanford Nuclear Site in Washington State was, in Frank's words, quote, home to the U.S. government's gargantuan plutonium operation. It, quote, churned out nearly all of the radioactive fuel that was used in the country's nuclear arsenal. Although no longer active, it remains the costliest environmental remediation project the world has ever and have ever seen and arguably the most contaminated place on the entire planet. Joshua Frank is an award-winning journalist, co-editor of the news site Counterpunch, author of several books, including The Big Heat, Earth on the Brink. He joins me to discuss his new book, Atomic Days, The Untold Story of the Most Toxic Place in America. Welcome to the program, Joshua. Uh, thanks for having me back on. It's good to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. I had never heard of Hanford, Washington, and as you mentioned, probably most Americans have never heard of it either. Tell me the story of how you stumbled upon this particular site that's in, you know, uh, it's several hours away from Seattle in Washington. How did it all start? Um, you know, I went to college in Oregon, and I think people within the environmental community in the Northwest are aware of Hanford, or, or at least tangentially, they know Hanford exists. They kind of understand a little bit about it. Um, but even, even people in the Northwest really don't know the peril that it's in. Um, Hanford was chosen as a site uh, during the Manhattan Project in the 1940s, um, and it was chosen because it's very remote uh, at the time. It's, you know, in eastern Washington. Uh, it was along the Columbia River. It had access to constant electricity because of the dams. Um, so it was sort of like out of sight, out of mind. Um, and of course, we know how covert the Manhattan Project was. So a lot of people even in and around the area didn't have any idea of what was going on there. Um, it, uh, the B reactor was the first reactor built that produced plutonium. Um, and it was the first uh, full-scale plutonium plant in the entire world, uh, the fuel of which was used in the Fat Man bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki. Um, so, and then over the course of the next decades during the Cold War, uh, like you said, it, it produced a gargantuan amount of plutonium. Um, and now we're suffering with the waste that came from that nuclear uh, production. Uh, plutonium is a, a byproduct of the nuclear uh, process. And there's a ton of waste out there, so much waste that it's hard to even comprehend. Um, there are 177 underground tanks that hold 56 million gallons of radioactive bubbling waste. And those tanks that are uh, just a few feet below the, below the surface of the ground are only a few miles away from the Columbia River. And those tanks were only built to hold that waste for about 20 years in some cases. So we're looking at going on 80 years. And so it's a, it's a big problem. There's been many, many leaks. There's been near catastrophes. Um, and Taxpayers in the U.S. Are, are paying so much money to clean this place up and not much progress has been made. The current uh, totals are about $677 billion, and that number just keeps going up. It was only about half that much five years ago. So, uh, you know, I, I want to bring a little attention to the, how bad this issue is. 
uh, the contractors that are tasked with cleaning it up have a very shoddy track record, Bechtel being the, the prime suspect. Um, and the Department of Energy just doesn't have the staff to oversee it. So yeah, I really, I really dive into a lot of these, these issues and uh, I hope it's a wake up call uh, about nuclear technology in general, but also the cleanup process that's going on out there. Tell me about the workers um, and who, some of whom you talk to who are tasked with keeping this place you know, cleaned up or ensuring that it doesn't contaminate any more than it is. Um, what sort of conditions do they work under? What have they suffered? Yeah, well, I've had a couple uh, whistleblowers go on record. Uh, I write about them in the book. Um, and I wrote pieces for Seattle Weekly um, a number of years ago about a couple in particular, one Donald Alexander, who is a top level, now retired uh, DOE scientist. And what he said was absolutely startling to me. Uh, he, he talked about how the DOE is understaffed. This is the have Department enough, of Energy. This is the, oh, yes, this Department of Energy uh, doesn't have enough technical staff um, to, to manage the project. Um, and they are under extreme, you know, working conditions. Uh, the workers uh, that are on the ground uh, obviously are working in some of the most toxic environments that are in, you know, anywhere. Uh, they're exposed to toxic vapors, chemical vapors. Uh, they're working with nuclear waste in a lot of cases, but it's not just nuclear waste. There's also all kinds of other, um, you know, toxic elements all over the place out there. And so I write about a number of people that have been, uh, you know, exposed that are now fighting back for work, more worker protections. You know, and sadly, you know, the unions um, haven't come together to really protect these workers. And uh, there's been a, you know, a history of malfeasance with the unions out there. Um, but this isn't to say that, you know, everybody out there is ill-intentioned. That's not the case at all. But um, it, when it, you're operating under a for-profit environment, you know, workers' uh, safety is, is secondary. Um, another whistleblower that I talked to, Walter Tamasitis, who um, has just an excruciating uh, story that I write about. Uh, he was a contractor for URS, um, which was a subcontractor of Bechtel. And he talks about just how management um, out there is more concerned about the bottom line than with, with cleaning up the Hanford. And, and you know, we're, we're seeing the damage that that's done. I mean, we, we've seen that nothing's really happened yet out there cleaning this stuff up and it's costing us a lot of money. Um, so, you know, workers are expendable and so are taxpayers. This land, like land all over what we call the United States today, is indigenous land. So tell me about the original inhabitants of the land that has now been laid waste by these nuclear um, byproducts of, of plutonium mining and what role they play today. <clears throat> Yeah, well, you know, this, the Columbia River is, has long been the lifeblood for the entire Northwest going back tens of thousands of years. It was, you know, the, the, all the salmon that were coming up that people lived off of for, for generations. Uh, when Lewis and Clark came into the Columbia River Basin, you know, they, they talked about how salmon runs were so great they could walk across the backs of them <laughs> to get to the other side of the river. I mean, it was a plentiful river, a vibrant river. Uh, just downstream from Hanford, there was a meeting place where indigenous communities all over the, the West Coast would gather to for, for trading. Um, it, so there's a long history there. Uh, most recently with, with the Hanford project, the Yakima Nation has been integrally involved. Uh, they were 
originally removed. So were the Nez Pierce from this from this area um, to erect this atomic beast. Um, and the Yakima Nation, um, under the guidance of Russell Jim, who who died a few years ago, uh, Russell Jim was an elder who dedicated his life to representing uh, his his people in the fight to clean up Hanford and made a, a tremendous impact. I write about him as well, because I think, you know, it's easy to get a really doom and gloom when you're talking about nuclear waste and, and the potential for the disaster. Uh, but it's also important to talk about the people that are making, you know, progress. And uh, the Yakima and indigenous communities now have a voice um, and they there's no federal legislation or anything that can happen at Hanford without a, a seat at the table for them. And that's thanks to the, the work that he did. Um, uh, so, you know, it's, Historically, just like much of this, uh, the military apparatus of the United States, um, indigenous peoples, poor people, working people are expendable people. They're, they are easily removed. They're easily forgotten um, because the U.S. military machine is, is more, more important. And of course, during the Cold War, we know that the U.S. would go to any lengths to uh, you know, counter what they thought was you know, a Russian offensive. Joshua, what is the big danger right now with Hanford nuclear uh, waste site? What, are, what do you fear, having mm -hmm. done the research and written this book, what do you fear and, and what do we all need to fear could happen if action isn't taken? And also, what action does need to be taken? Uh, well, right now, uh, the, the most pressing concern, in my view, is that these tanks are leaking. There is a there's a tank that's leaking right now that they don't really know what to do with. Uh, they're letting it leak. Um, and is it leaking so into the river? It's it's leaking into the groundwater supplies that mm -hmm. will eventually make its way to the river. Yes. Wow. Um, it, there's. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if tomorrow there's another leak that's found. Um, there's been something almost 70 leaks that have been on record in the last you know since it's been in operation. Uh, so that that's a big concern, obviously. Um, but from a from a even a more dire situation, like Donald Alexander talked about with me. Um, if there's a hydrogen buildup in one of these tanks, uh, there could be an atomic explosion that could happen. Um, and a similar thing actually happened at a sister facility that a lot of people don't know about in the 50s uh, in Russia, um, at the place called Mayak, which a, a uh, explosion happened there and completely decimated an entire region of people. Um, of course, that was really never talked about because that was also a covert operation. Um, and the U.S. didn't want to expose it either because it would, <laughs> it would, you know, probably cause a little concern about our own nuclear proliferation. Um, but that that potential is very real at Hanford, and and if that kind of thing were to happen, it would decimate the economy of the Northwest. Not to mention the environment. Uh, places like Boise would become uninhabitable, and this is a very real concern. And you know, this nuclear waste. If, if it doesn't uh, become vitrified, which is what they're planning on doing, which is turning it into glass and, and safely storing it, um, we could be facing this problem going down the road here. And, um, you know, it might not happen for 50 years, but that's, that's nothing in, the, in, in, you know, lifespan of nuclear waste. So this waste is going to be bubbling for the next 200,000 years. So it's, uh, it's a big concern. And I think it's a cautionary tale of, of nuclear waste in general and nuclear power production produces waste um, and the same same kind of issues uh, exist with with all nuclear technology. Um, 
So what, what can we do? Um, there's a lot when of groups in it. And, and sorry, just, just a, one point, when you say all nuclear technology, currently in the wake of, of you know, communities looking for solutions to climate change, nuclear is often touted as a clean energy. Um, does Hanford hold any lessons for that? Even though, of course, the plutonium mined from Hanford was for nuclear weaponry. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I think it's, it's without getting too technical about the science, in order to produce plutonium, you have to have a, a, a nuclear reaction in a nuclear reactor. There was nine nuclear reactors at Hanford. Um, instead of producing nuclear energy, uh, you know, it was producing plutonium. Uh, plutonium is a byproduct, just like CO2 is a byproduct of burning fossil fuels. Um, so in a power plant, uh, nuclear power plants that operate today, they also produce plutonium and nuclear waste. That plutonium has a 250,000 year lifespan. So you have to be able to, you have to put that somewhere safely and store it um, indefinitely, right? So it's a, it's still a problem. Obviously, um, they've come a long way in dealing with nuclear waste, but it's, it, there's no way to keep nuclear waste safe for that long of a period of time. I mean, to put it in perspective, humans have only been roaming the earth for 60,000 years or so, right? So what are you going to do for a hundred thousand years? Um, and not, and aside from the, the, the problem of nuclear waste, what it could do or plutonium in particular due to the environment, it also can be used in nuclear weapons. So governments have a reason to keep this stuff safe. And, and how are you going to do that over that long period of time? Um, so I think it's really important that people are, are concerned about it and, uh, definitely Hanford poses some lessons for us there. Um, and then really quickly on nuclear power too. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but the mining of uranium is completely very carbon intensive, uh, to extract uranium from, from, uh, or it, it costs, takes a lot of fossil fuels to do that. So it's, it's definitely not a green energy. And I would argue one of the most dangerous, uh, energy sources we have today. And so uh, just to finish the thought, uh, not only does the uh, around the cleanup of Hanford in general uh, need action in order to enclose all of the waste, but I imagine funding, right? And is there a mm -hmm. permanent solution to that short of, you know, shooting it to the moon? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, that's probably it's on the table, <laughs> I think, at this point. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, you know I, I think the the thing that I want to take away I want people to take away from from this conversation really is that uh, I hope there's more accountability. I mean I I think the price tag is one thing, um, but it's about what where's that money being spent. I think people would be fine if it's being spent um, and there's some actual remediation going on, uh, but it's a very technical difficult process. Uh, and you have a for-profit corporation that has a very bad track record, Bechtel. Uh, you know, <laughs> almost through its entire history has failed at so many jobs. And this is a, this is their biggest one yet. Um, so there just needs to be more accountability. There needs to be more public awareness um, and there needs to be, to be some more oversight. Right. Um, there are communities to answer your earlier question that are um, groups that are working on this. Columbia Riverkeeper, um, that's in Hood River, Oregon, is doing a great job. Obviously, the Yakima Nation is doing a lot of great work. Um, and a group up in Seattle called Hanford Challenge. They do tremendous work in protecting whistleblowers and, and workers and speaking up for them and representing them. So those local organizations can, can be supported. Uh, if you're living in Florida or somewhere else and you're worried about this, you know, contact your congressperson and tell them where they stand on it. I mean, 
when Obama was running for office, he didn't even know what Hanford was. Hmm. <laughs> it, it, a lot of people that are even in office don't know, you know, and, and the, the funding that they get stuffed into, you know, the DOE bills and all the, these other things, they don't even know what, what it is or what's going on. So um, even raising awareness and, and educating your Congress people about this is important, I believe. Well, I want to thank you so much, Joshua, for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Good luck with the book. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. My guest has been Joshua Frank, award-winning journalist, co-editor of the new site Counterpunch. And we've been discussing his new book, Atomic Days, the untold story of the most toxic place in America. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.